Good evening, everybody, or good morning in Singapore. Um, yeah, so the class has been interrupted a bit, um, kind of the whole last year. <laughs> yeah, and it'll be up interrupted again in, in the winter, but for right now, uh, we will continue on. And so I had it marked that we were on page 296, The Buddha Nature According to the Madhyamaka School. Okay? So I thought, actually, to review the last two paragraphs in the preceding section, because one of them talks about uh, activities to stimulate our Buddha nature, and then the other talks about the other Chitta Mantra school that says there's one final vehicle, whereas one of them says there's three final vehicles, the other one says there's one. And so just to remind you of what that be means again. But first, let's start some silent meditation, generating our motivation, and then we'll get into the teaching. Let's generate our motivation. And I think for all of us, deep in our heart, we really respect the bodhicitta. We want to become bodhisattvas. We really want to be able to have impartial love and compassion for all beings. You know, that, that sincerity of motivation is in there. But sometimes we all know that the afflictions, the self-centeredness take over, 
And it becomes difficult to act in accordance with what our deepest motivation is because we have these innate and acquired afflictions that rise up very powerfully in our mind and interrupt. So part of our practice is always about checking our motivation and as much as possible bringing our mind back to what our deepest sincere motivation is. And then, of course, being able to catch it when we're acting in the opposite way. And again, bringing our mind back. So during the day before and after so many activities, we generate bodhicitta and then dedicate the merit in align with bodhicitta, aspiring for the awakening of all sentient beings, which will depend on our attaining awakening too. So with this kind of long-term motivation that is there in our heart, Sometimes it gets obscured, it gets ignored, but it's there. Then let's call it up again and make that our motivation for sharing the Dharma this evening. So am I right in saying that somewhere deep in there our sincerest motivation is to become bodhisattvas and to have infant, you know, impartial love and compassion for all beings? That's there, isn't it? Yeah. And we try and remind ourselves of it repeatedly many times during the day. And then what happens in terms of our speech and our physical actions during the day. And the, the mental intentions that motivate those actions. Bodhicitta gets a little lost, doesn't it? And, uh, and then we, we wind up acting opposite to what our deepest wish is. And this happens again and again and again. And sometimes people may call us on some bad behavior that we have, and we get angry. Why are you pointing that out at me? Actually, when people point out our mistaken behavior, what they're really saying 
is deep down you have this very beautiful motivation. And right at this moment, it's not manifest and you've lost it. So, you know, wake up and bring your mind back. Don't fall into uh, being hypocritical. Yeah. So do you find situations in your life that like this? Yeah? And it's so funny that, that people point things out and we get offended. Instead of hearing what they're saying is, you have this beautiful motivation and right now your afflictions are preventing you from acting accordance in accord with this beautiful motivation. So wake up. Yeah? It would be an interesting way to train our mind to hear every time somebody's uh, called us on our behavior. Wouldn't it? Yeah? And every time we, we did something that's kind of strange. Like I heard that, you know, because Sunday we're having the... Uh, we're inviting all of our our hosts from when we were, I was going to say, in exile. And, <laughs> well, it was a kind of exile. And, and, and then I was going to say in, in excavation. <laughs> no, in evacuation. Yeah, we're inviting them all up. And I heard that when, uh, you know, so we can celebrate and thank them. And then I heard... Now, when uh, somebody said, okay, who wants to work in the kitchen and prepare the food, hardly anybody uh, raised their hand to volunteer to do that. And somebody even said, oh, well, let's get the guests to do the cooking. Get the guests to do the cooking when we're inviting them to celebrate their and thank them for their incredible kindness to us. Okay. So at that moment, what happened? Yeah. The, the, the beautiful motivation got lost somehow. And the mind came up, or the usual mind of, I don't want to do it. I don't feel like it. Somebody else can do it. Yeah. But if somebody says something at that moment, then we feel, oh, somebody's shaming me. Why are they shaming me? Why are they pointing out my mistake? They do the same thing. Why are they pointing at me? Oh, I'm always getting picked on. You know the story. Okay? But if we heard it in a different way, like that, what that person's saying is, you had a beautiful motivation. Invite all these people to come up and we're going to share our, you know, our incredible gratitude and appreciation for them for taking us in at the snap of the fingers and keeping us there for a week, you know. Um, and somebody's saying, yeah, you have that beautiful motivation. Come back to it. Don't let the self-centered thought you know, kidnap, kidnap your motivation. Okay. So you're getting what I mean? It would be a good way to learn to hear when people comment on things. 
Yeah. We usually don't do that. Yeah. We get offended and then we try and explain ourselves. Well, the reason I said that the guests should cook the food is, well, I forgot that we were inviting them as guests. And anyway, they come up here and have nothing to do. And I work at the Abbey and I work so hard. And so why should I also have to cook? Yeah. Is that when that kind of thing goes on in our mind, is that in a line with our deepest motivation? Hello? No, it's not, is it? Yeah? So you have to keep, you know, coming back and renewing our motivation. I was uh, very touched when Venerable Boyi, uh, somebody also told me the, this, this story, that she, or maybe she said it when I was here, I can't remember, but... Um, that, you know, sometimes because she was in the, being the director of their whole big organization, all sorts of problems would come up and she wouldn't know how to deal with them. Yeah. And people were coming and knocking on her door. Da, 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 da. And what did she do when she felt like, you know, oh, my teacher put me in this position and it's so difficult and why do I have to be like this and ah, nah, nah. Um, what did she do? She didn't fall into that. She went to the Buddha hall and prostrated. Yeah, as an act of humility and said, you know, uh, to the Buddha, I'm sorry, my practice, you know, hasn't advanced to the point where I can handle these things yet. And when I heard that, I thought that was so beautiful, yeah, because she didn't get down on herself and criticize or, you know, make excuses. It was, you know, what she said, bowing to the Buddha in the presence of the Buddha is, right now, I wish I could act in that way and solve these problems and be patient throughout the whole thing. But right now, my practice isn't up to the point where I can do that. And I thought that was so, it was so humble and so true, you know, to be able to say that and know, you know, oh, oh if I only had more compassion. That's what I used to do, you know. It's like I compare myself to my teacher. And, oh, I'm so selfish. If I only had more compassion, I could do this and this and that. You know, and that just, that way of reacting kind of clouds the mind and makes more problems in the mind. Yeah? Rather than trying to purify at that moment. Okay, so let's remember our motivations. And we will forget them and we'll, we will act opposite to them. Yeah? And we will renew our motivations and come back and learn. Yeah. Okay. So let's just review this little bit at the end on page 295 at the bottom. Okay. So uh, our Buddha just, uh, this is said by the Chittamandras, but it applies equally to 
to the Madhyamakas. Our Buddha disposition may be impeded from manifesting when great attachment or strong afflictions overwhelm our minds and when we are too busy to be interested in spiritual practice or don't see the faults of the afflictions. So we all have experienced all of that. Thinking our actions lack an ethical dimension and experiencing hindrances such as illness, poverty, or strong karmic obstructions also prevent our disposition from developing. Okay, so sometimes it's internal obscurations, uh, sometimes it's external hindrances. Yeah. So, you know, don't, when your mind starts acting like that, uh, just realize, you know, the Buddha and the great masters know about that. They point it out in a text. This is not something new, like we're the only sentient being who's ever done that. Yeah. Certain activities can stimulate our Buddha disposition. Learning and reflecting on teachings, living in an environment that is conducive to practice, and abiding near our spiritual mentor or sincere practitioners. So sometimes, you know, we just say, what can I do to improve my practice? This is it. Yeah, look at the bottom of page 295 and you'll remember. <laughs> Generating the aspiration for virtuous qualities, restraining our senses, abandoning non-virtue, receiving monastic ordination, purifying obscurations, and so on, also invigorate our Buddha disposition. Okay, so that's how to, yeah, uh, wake up our, our Buddha nature, yeah. So relying on the Lotus Sutra and the Tathagata Garbha Sutra, the Chittamatra reasoning proponents and all Madhyamikas assert one final vehicle. All sentient beings can enter the Bodhisattva vehicle and attain Buddhahood. Okay, so that's a common to the reasoning, Chittamatra reasoning proponents and the Madhyamikas. Um, the the uh, Chittamadra scriptural proponents, or Yogacharya, sometimes is another name, Yogacharya scriptural proponents, um, they say there's three final vehicles, meaning that somebody has the Buddha nature to be either uh, a Shravaka arhat, a, a solitary realizer arhat, or a, or a Buddha. And then we all, it also talked about those who are indefinite in lineage. We went through that, didn't we? And then those, I can never say the name, um, it means the, the people who, uh, whose, uh, Buddha nature is broken and, and won't attain Buddhahood. Okay. So that school asserts that, yeah, the reasoning of, Sinamana reasoning components, the Majamika say, no, everybody can become a Buddha. So there's one final uh, vehicle, meaning the vehicle that takes you to full awakening. 
Okay. Um, the Sublime Continuum by Maitreya and Asanga's commentary on it speak of four types of people whose Buddha nature is defiled in that they are not yet ready to enter the Bodhisattva vehicle, engage in the two collections of merit and wisdom, and progress on the path to full awakening. So who's not ready yet? First group, worldly people who are infatuated with samsaric pleasures. Sounds like us before we met the Dharma. Yeah. And it sounds like many of our old friends or family members. Yeah. So this is where they're at. Yeah. It, it takes some time to awaken their, their interest. Okay. So they're one group. Yeah. And then the other group are non-Buddhists who hold wrong views, shravakas and solitary realizers. So the non-Buddhists who hold wrong views, um, their Buddha nature is defiled, not permanently, but just in the, in terms of they're not ready yet to, to enter into the path to Buddhahood. Um, so clearly people, non-Buddhists with very big wrong views, like saying, uh, you know, there's a, a, a permanent creator, or we are hardwired with afflictions. It's impossible for sentient beings to uh, overcome our self-centeredness. These kind of wrong views, yeah. So those people, and then also the uh, the shravakas, the hearers, and the solitary realizers. So those are practitioners who are aiming to attain arhatship. Yeah. So because their motivation is to attain arhatship, not full awakening, we say that their their Buddha nature is, is still, you know, defiled, it's covered, yeah? Our, our Buddha nature probably depends on when you catch us, yeah? Sometimes, oh yeah, it's alive and awake, and other times, our Buddha nature is I don't know where, you know, involved in some kind of, mental wandering, fantasizing, wasting time kind of thing. Okay. Uh, so they also discuss, these two texts, um, discuss the specific obscurations that block these sentient beings and explain their antidotes. Uh, and that's going to come later when we talk about the nine similes for Buddha nature. Uh, so, and in this case, Asanga writes from a Majjhimaka viewpoint that holds that all sentient beings have the Buddha nature. So sometimes uh, Asanga writes from the viewpoint of the uh, Yogacarya scriptural opponents and other times as a Majjhimika. Okay. Now, it isn't because he can't make up his mind. Yeah, it's... That, you know, because you find this, and uh, you know, also with Vasubandhu, sometimes he writes according to the Vibhasaka viewpoint, sometimes the Satantraka viewpoint, yeah, sometimes more advanced viewpoint. It's because they're writing for different audiences. Okay. Now, next section, 
Buddha nature according to the Madhyamaka school. So the topic of Buddha nature or uh, gotra, there's a lot of different Tibetan words that are translated as, as Buddha nature. Yeah, gotra is one of them. Is uh, So the topic of Buddha nature is found in the perfection of wisdom sutras, okay, in the ornament of clear realization, in sublime continuum, uh, or Uttamara Tantra is another name for it. Uh, and that's by Maitreya and its commentary by his disciple, Asanga. It's also found in the Bodhisattva grounds or the Bodhisattva Bhumi and other Mahayana texts. So the Tathagatagarbha Sutra and the Nirvana Sutra, both of these uh, are very um, prominent in Chinese Buddhism. Yeah, they speak of the Buddha essence using a more essentialist language. As a Majamika, I prefer presentations that lack the essentialist meaning. Okay, so essentialist language is the language that talks about the Buddha nature as if it uh, has its own inherent essence. So it's talking about it so that it sounds like it's uh, something, yeah, that you grasp, that is truly existent. Okay. And you, you find various uh, Buddhist traditions yeah, that, uh, in, you know, both, that follow both Yogacarya and Majjhimika, where sometimes the, the Buddha nature is talk about, talked about like this. But His Holiness says, as a Majjhimika, I prefer presentations that lack the essentialist meanings, like Ngok Lotsawa. Uh, he was one of the early Tibetan translators who translated the sublime continuum into Tibetan. In the Sutrayana context, I believe the Buddha essence primarily refers to the emptiness of the mind. Okay, so in the context of Sutrayana, he thinks it refers primarily, that doesn't mean only, but to the emptiness of the mind. The sublime continuum defines Buddha nature as a phenomena, as phenomena that have the possibility to transform into any of the Buddha bodies. It is of two types, the naturally abiding Buddha nature and the transforming Buddha nature. Both exist in all sentient beings, whether or not they are on a path. When we say, when we talk about on a path or realizing a path, a path is a consciousness. Yeah. A vehicle. When we talk about a sutrayana, a tantrayana, these different vehicles, vehicles are also consciousnesses. So they are consciousnesses with some level of realization. So we talk about following the path as if the, you know, the path to awakening is something out here and you get on it and you take a few steps and you walk and you get there. Actually, when we talk about the path, we're talking about uh, consciousnesses, you know, especially ones that realize emptiness. Okay. So the naturally abiding Buddha nature is the emptiness of the mind that is yet to abandon defilements 
and that is able to transform into the nature dharmakaya of a Buddha. So it has two qualities, okay, the naturally abiding Buddha nature. Okay, first, it's the emptiness of the mind. Yeah, but not any old mind. It's the emptiness of the mind that is yet to abandon defilements. Okay, so uh, a Buddha's mind has mind has abandoned all defilements. So we don't say it has the naturally abiding Buddha nature. Yeah, instead we say that it is it has the nature dharmakaya or the nature truth body. Yeah, which is the emptiness of the Buddha's mind. Okay, so naturally abiding Buddha nature, the emptiness of the mind that is yet to abandon defilements and that is able to transform into the nature dharmakaya of a Buddha. Okay, so the in a sentient being, the emptiness of the mind of a sentient being because sentient beings' minds have yet to abandon all the defilements, yeah, they have the potential to transform into the nature body of a, a fully awakened Buddha. So we've talked about the four Buddha bodies, which can be three Buddha bodies or two Buddha bodies. Um, the nature uh, dharmakaya, is it permanent or impermanent? Is permanent, okay? And the emptiness, the um, naturally abiding Buddha nature in a sentient being, is that permanent or impermanent? Also permanent, okay? Actually, emptiness in one, emptiness in the other, em from the side of emptiness and how a direct perceiver apprehends that, uh, there's no difference between these two emptinesses of a sentient being's mind and a Buddha's mind. However, because, and we talked about this a long time ago, that because one mind, which it is the emptiness of, has afflictions, and the other mind that it is the emptiness of doesn't have afflictions, yeah, then one we say is naturally abiding Buddha nature that will be transformed into the the nature truth body of a Buddha. Okay, so the emptiness of a sentient being's mind is the naturally abiding Buddha nature. It's the emptiness of a sentient being's mind. Yeah, that the mind that it is an emptiness of is a mind with pollution. It's a defiled mind. It's a sentient being's mind. Okay. So from that perspective, oh, well, let me finish. Then the uh, naturally, uh, the uh, nature truth body of a Buddha is the emptiness of a Buddha's mind, which has eliminated all defilements. From the viewpoint of those two being emptiness, you know, as perceived by a direct cognizer, there's no deference, okay? But one is the emptiness of a defiled mind, one is the emptiness of a pure mind. So in that respect, they are different, yeah? And in that respect, we say that the emptiness of a sentient being's mind gets purified 
when that sentient being's mind gets purified. Okay. Yeah, because initially it sounds like, what? We have the, we have the emptiness? Are, are we as sentient beings? Our mind is empty of true existence. That's the same emptiness of a Buddha. Uh, why are you telling me that it's defiled? Yeah, because it's the emptiness of a defiled mind, not an emptiness of a purified mind. Okay. So, um, Sakya Pandita described this, uh, the natural abiding Buddha nature, um, as the unchanging nature of the mind. So that, would, of course, would be emptiness. In the tre- in treatise of the Middle Way, Nagarjuna notes that whatever is the nature of Tathagatas is the nature of sentient beings. So here he's going to be saying that the emptiness of those two minds is the same. So he said, whatever is the essence, essence here means nature, not permanent essence, whatever is the essence of the Tathagata, that is the essence of the transmigrator. The Tathagata has no essence. The transmigrator has no essence. What does it mean? We just said, he just said, whatever is the essence of the Buddha, of the Tathagata is the essence of the transmigrator. So he's saying they both have, you know, the essence. And then in the last two lines, he says neither of them have essence. What, what, what in the world is he talking about? Does essence have the same meaning in the first two lines and in the last two lines? What does it mean in the first two lines? Whatever is the essence of the Tathagata. There he's talking about the ultimate nature of the Tathagata, the emptiness of the mind. Okay, that's the essence of the transmigrator. Also their, yeah, the, their uh, ultimate nature. The Tathagata has no essence. What does essence mean there? Inherent existence. Okay, so the Tathagata has no inherent existence. The transmigrator has no inherent existence. So you have to be careful when you read these verses because sometimes the same word will have different meanings in the same verse. Yeah. So they try to write things that make you think. Yeah, sometimes you have to think a lot because you don't understand much. This empty nature of the mind is beyond the three times, past, present, and future, beyond the realms of cyclic existence, and beyond constructive and destructive karma. Okay, so the emptiness of the mind, you know, it's, you can't talk about it as, uh, you know, past. I mean, you can talk about it as past, present, and future, yeah. But it's, what it's saying is if you realize the emptiness of the mind, you're not thinking about past, present, and future, or which realm the mind is in, or um, 
you know, is is that mind, is the emptiness of the mind virtuous or non-virtuous? Okay, so it's beyond that. Neither virtuous nor non-virtuous. It can act as the basis for both samsara and nirvana. Okay, so the empty nature of the mind can be the basis for samsara. It can be the basis for nirvana. Okay, what does it mean to be the basis of samsara and the basis of nirvana? Yeah, it's talking about a mind whose ultimate nature is empty, is emptiness, yeah, that mind can be either a mind in samsara or a mind in nirvana. Yeah, because the emptiness of those two minds from the viewpoint of the emptiness and when it's perceived by a direct perceiver is the same. Okay, when we talk about the equality of samsara and nirvana, what we're talking about is both of them are empty of inherent existence, and in that way, samsara is the same as nirvana. It does not mean in the conventional way samsara and nirvana are not different. When you're in samsara, you experience dukkha. When you're in nirvana, you don't experience dukkha. There's a big difference between the two. Okay? Yeah. So here you see that the ultimate, in terms of the ultimate nature, samsara nirvana, yeah, the ultimate nature of a mind of samsara, one in nirvana, is the same. But in terms of their conventional nature, how the minds exist conventionally, how the people exist conventionally. Yeah. You, you don't just say, well, everything is empty. So a person in samsara is the same as a person in nirvana. It doesn't make any difference. Okay. So this kind of, um, misunderstanding a lot of people have, you know, and just say, oh, well, the Buddha said, Samsara and nirvana are the same. They're equal. Yeah, so I'm in nirvana already. Well, if that's nirvana, I'm not sure I want to attain it because, you know, it doesn't look like it's free from all dukkha to me. Okay, so we have to, yeah, be quite careful here. The 8,000-line Perfection of Wisdom Sutra says, Thus, that which is the reality of all things, reality of all things is emptiness. Okay. The reality of all things is not past, nor future, nor present. Okay. Whatever is need, in other words, when you are directly perceiving emptiness, there is no awareness in your mind of, I'm in the past, or the, this is the past Buddha emptiness, this is the present Buddha emptiness, or the present emptiness of mind, this is the future emptiness. There's no thought going on like that in your mind. Okay. Um, so it's neither past, present, nor future. Whatever is neither past, present, nor future is utterly free from threefold time. 
yeah, cannot be transferred, not objectified, not conceptualized, and not cognized. So you can't transfer that emptiness or that realis- or, or the realization to somebody else. It's not objectified. It's not inherently existent. So emptiness itself is not inherently existent. It's when it says not conceptualized, well, we can conceptualize emptiness. We're talking about emptiness right now. We're conceptualizing it. What it means when it says it's not conceptualized is that the experience of realizing emptiness directly, yeah, cannot be expressed in words or it cannot be expressed via a conceptual appearance uh, or anything like that. Yeah. We can talk about it, blah, blah, but that is not, talking about it is not the experience of it. Yeah. Like you can talk about chocolate chip cookies. Yeah. But if you've never eaten a chocolate chip cookie, you know, all you have is somebody's description, and they say it's sweet, but you've never had anything sweet. You don't know what sweet means. Yeah, it's not your experience, okay? So really pointing out here, you know, the difference between knowing something with a conceptual mind and knowing it directly. Yeah, quite different. Okay, uh, it cannot be exceptionalized nor cognized. Well, you say, but it is cognized. When somebody realizes emptiness directly, they are cognizing emptiness. Yeah. But it is not cognized as an inherently existent object. Okay. It doesn't mean it's not cognized at all. It means when you cognize emptiness, you're not cognizing it as something that's inherently existent. And this is another problem that many people have in realizing emptiness, is they say, oh, it's the ultimate nature, it must be inherently existent. You know, And this is also the problem with translating it as absolute truth instead of as ultimate truth. Because the, the term English in absolute means it sounds like Absolute, this is it. It's independent of all other phenomena. But emptiness is dependent. Okay? It is a dependent arising. Hey, wait a minute. Emptiness, how can emptiness be a dependent arising? It isn't caused by causes and conditions. But remember that dependent arising doesn't... Ne- there's different kinds of dependent arising. One is dependent on causes and condition. One is dependent on parts. One is dependent on being merely conceived and designated by mind. Okay. So the last two, uh, don't have to be, um, you can have the last two that are not inherently, that are not that are permanent, whereas the first one, dependence on cause and condition, is impermanent. Okay, 
So the existence of the naturally abiding Buddha nature, the emptiness of inherent existence of ordinary beings' minds, means that mental defilements can be eliminated. Hmm, what's the connection between the mind being empty of inherent existence and the ability to eliminate the defilements on the mind? Okay, so that's, in the book it says, why? Yeah, if phenomena existed inherently, they would be independent of everything else. Okay. Something that is independent of all other factors cannot uh, function. It cannot be influenced by other things because it's independent of everything. Yeah. So causes and conditions can change, but that can't influence something that's inherently existent. So if the mind were inherently existent, yeah, or the empty, you know, then it could never change. We could never, you know, get rid of the defilements. Yeah. So when we say the existence of the naturally abiding Buddha nature, the emptiness of inherent existence of ordinary beings' minds, means that mental defilements can be eliminated. Why? And here the proof is, if it wasn't like that, if phenomena existed inherently, they would be independent of everything else and thus would be able to function. Okay, so then the mind couldn't function, the afflictions couldn't function, our meditative our meditation could wouldn't be a functioning phenomena. Okay. So things couldn't function, they couldn't influence one another, and they couldn't change. The fact that the ultimate nature of the mind is empty of an air in existence indicates that the mind can change. Okay. So this is actually one of the things that is used to refute inherent existence is that if things existed inherently, they would be permanent. Yeah, they couldn't be influenced by causes and conditions by any other phenomena. So this works very well to refute the inherent existence of functioning things because functioning things are impermanent. So we can't say they're permanent. Are you with me? Um, okay. You have to go over this and think about it. Yeah. Okay. So the fact that the ultimate nature of the mind is empty of inherent existence indicates that the mind can change. In addition, so when you're, when you get you know, alarmed, oh, I'm acting out of my afflictions again. I can't change. I'm trying so hard to change and nothing is changing and I'm doing the same. So stupidagios again and again. Remember this. Yeah. Your mind is empty of an air in existence. That means the afflictions can be eliminated. They are not an inherent part of the mind. Do you see how so often we get ourselves tied up? And, and the way we get ourselves tied up 
is often based on misunderstandings and wrong views. Yeah. Like, my mind is permanent. I can never change. Yeah. Sometimes we feel like that. Then, but if you sit and think about it, wait a minute. I've studied Dora. I've studied low rig. I've studied this. Why am I thinking that the mind is a permanent phenomena? I know that it's dependent on causes and conditions. I know that it can change. Yeah? We need to remind ourselves of these things sometimes. Okay. In addition, all defilements are rooted in fundamental ignorance. The erroneous mental factor that grasps all phenomena as possessing an inherent reality. This erroneous grasping gives rise to attachment, anger, and all other afflictions and supports virtuous, polluted mental states as well. So even though we may act as ordinary beings with a virtuous mind, that mind is still polluted by at least the latencies of inherent existence. So sometimes that trips us up. Wait a minute, I did something virtuous. How can you tell me my virtuous mind is polluted and it's still the cause of samsara? It's virtuous. Shouldn't all virtue be the cause of nirvana? Well, if it's polluted virtue, it's still the cause of samsara because it's virtue created under the influence of either ignorance or the latency, the seed of, of ignorance. Okay. Yeah, when I first heard about this, I was mad. Yeah. Well, I was in, uh, oh, we were at one of His Holiness's teachings, and I saw Geshe-la there. And um, we were discussing one thing in the Lam Rim Chenmo when he talks about uh, you know, virtue, polluted virtue being the cause of samsara. I said to Geshe-Land, how can that be? You know, that's, uh, 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 uh. yeah. So we had a big debate about it. And then I think we went to, to see geshe um, Tapke after that. <laughs> he settled it. So, <laughs> yeah. So this erroneous, yeah, erroneous grasping gives rise to attachment, anger, and all other afflictions and supports virtuous polluted mental states as well. Now this is something that it's important to spend some time trying to understand, okay? Which is erroneous grasping, grasping at true existence gives rise to attachment, anger, and other afflictions. Why? How? This is really important to think about because if we don't understand how ignorance supports all the other afflictions, then we don't understand why we should meditate on emptiness because we're told we meditate on emptiness because it overcomes ignorance. Yeah, but if ignorance is not the cause, uh, you know, of all the other afflictions, then why should we eliminate it? Okay, 
But it would keep hearing. No, we have to eliminate it. Why? It causes the other afflictions. And the other afflictions create the karma, and the karma throws us again and again in samsara. Okay. But to really sit and sit with your own experience, yeah, and try and, and tell when you are grasping an inherent existence. And then try and see, well, why does this kind of grasping make other afflictions arise? Getting what I'm saying? Okay. So what's an example of when you're grasping an inherent existence? Yeah. Okay. Well, not just anger. Okay. Let's, let's just say, uh, you're getting mad at somebody. Okay. So how is grasping an inherent existence related to your anger towards somebody? You think they're inherently a jerk and you're inherently right and yeah, that's just how things are and always will be. <laughs> what does it mean to be inherently right? It means I'm above blame and I didn't do anything wrong. So that justifies the anger and it's reasonable. Okay. Mm, okay, but how does grasping at I? How does grasping at I make you inherently right and make your, uh, you know, how does it connect to your anger? Because there's these two separate entities that are not connected, and you can say one is this way and the other is that way. What, what are the two separate entities here? Me and the other person. Okay. So you're separate phenomena. That's true. You're separate phenomena. Then why do you need to get angry at them? Because there's no connection there. They're inherently existent, independent entities. Yeah. So then you have no relation. Why get mad at them? Yeah. Doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. Because in your scenario, there's a big I that I need to protect. <laughs> and, yeah. And everything else flows from that. Yeah. And I this, want this, I don't want that. Yeah. This is it's an independent I that is being threatened, which itself is contradictory because if it were independent, it could never be threatened. Yeah. So even how we feel is totally contradictory to reality. Because we, we say, I feel, you know, that there's a me here. I feel it. You know, that must be true. There's a me here. I mean, don't you feel that you're there somewhere, like floating around? Yeah. Do you, do you see it here? Do you see it here? Is it in your big toe? Yeah. It's usually, some people say here, when you say here, you said here, when you're mad, so you're, you're mad up here. 
oh, so it's all just conceptual rubbish. Uh, you, you don't feel mad in here. You just say, I think I'm mad, I think I'm mad. <laughs> I don't believe that. <laughs> You know, observe. Observe, yeah. Sometimes it, it does feel like it's here. But if you look closely, yeah, when somebody said something hurtful to you, it's here. Yeah. Are you inside there? Yeah. Are you inside here? Yeah. Are you inside here? But you just said that, that that's where you, where you feel things. There's not a little hum- homunculus there? Oh, there is. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Watch when you get mad. You know, how you... Where Where is the I? What is the I? Even sometimes what's very interesting is if you've ever been in a very quiet environment, you know, and then somebody just very quietly says your name. How does our mind react when we just hear somebody whisper our name in, in no particular tone of voice or anything? Is there a feeling of, that's me? Who? Yeah. Somebody says, you know, what's your name? Yeah. Shahrazad. You know, somebody. I forget who is Shahrazad. She was a queen of something. Hmm? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I read that when I was a kid. Okay. So somebody says, Shahrazad. And inside, there's this feeling. Oh, they're talking about me. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Whereas if they say another name, they say, Rapunzel, (laughs) you don't go, oh, they're talking about me. Yeah, unless you're trying to comb your hair. (laughs) And you can't get the comb out of the hair. Uh, Quite interesting. Watch how that happens. And then think, okay, what's the connection between that feeling of me and anger, or that feeling of me and attachment, or jealousy. So uh, this erroneous grasping gives rise, the grasping at true existence, gives rise to attachment, anger, and all other afflictions, and supports virtuous, polluted mental states as well. From these spring our actions or karma, which cause us to take continual rebirth in cyclic existence. So this sequence is very important that you know. 
Okay. And it's going back to the 12 links. Yeah. And how, how from ignorance, yeah, it creates, uh, afflictions, which create the karma, which is implanted on the mind, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So quite important to remember that. Otherwise, if you can't figure out how ignorance connects to afflictions, connects to karma, connects to dukkha, then, then what are you doing in your practice? What are you trying to realize and for what reason? Yeah. Cultivating insight into the true nature of reality, emptiness, initiates the process of undoing this causal chain. With the development of the wisdom that directly perceives reality, reality being emptiness or suchness, this ignorance can be overpowered and completely eradicated from the mind. The defilements are not embedded in the ultimate nature of the mind. They too lack inherent existence. So when the antidote of the wisdom directly realizing emptiness is applied to them, they can be removed from the mind. So when we usually think of our afflictions, they seem very solid. Yeah. I have such a problem with anger. Or I'm really pissed right now. Yeah. It's so solid, isn't it? Yeah. But what is it? What is it? Yeah. And in, in whose mind? Yeah. What, what is anger? We say, oh, well, it's a fear. We know the definition, don't we? Yeah, what's the definition of anger? Uh, 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 it's not just exaggerating. It's based on exaggerating. And what does anger do? It, yeah, it seeks to push away or destroy whatever it thinks is causing that. But it's based on exaggeration. So is there a little thing inside of you that is called anger? It's in like one of those nice little boutique bottles. Yeah, and it's called anger. And so whenever somebody, you know, prick, pricks that little boutique body, bottle, then the, you know, the essence of anger comes pouring out and pollutes the whole environment and Venerable Losang runs away because it smells awful. <laughs> and everybody else runs away with him. Yeah? Is that what anger is? Yeah? Spend some time when you're angry and just, you know, what is anger? Can you draw a line on it? Is it a particular color? Does it have a certain weight? Oh, that's why I'm overweight. <laughs> my anger, I have too much anger, and my anger weighs a ton. 
Okay. Okay, on the basis of recognizing the naturally abiding Buddha nature, uh, which is also called natural nirvana, or the emptiness of the mind, we can attain the nirvana that is the total pacification of mental defilements. So natural nirvana remembers the emptiness of the mind. Yeah, that can be a polluted mind. Yeah. But by realizing that, we can attain the, a different kind of nirvana that is the total pacification of the defilements. Okay, so that's true cessation. A Buddha's nirvana is non-abiding nirvana, the full purification of the naturally abiding Buddha nature. So the naturally abiding Buddha nature is fully purified, yeah, it becomes uh, the non-abiding nirvana of a Buddha. In some texts, the emptiness of the mind is called a cause of Buddhahood. Is emptiness a cause of anything? Why not? It's permanent. Yeah. So in some texts, the emptiness of the mind is called a cause of Buddhahood in the sense that meditation on emptiness purifies the mind of defilements and leads to Buddhahood. So you find this kind of thing a lot. You know, some text will say, like this, emptiness is the cause of Buddhahood. And you go, no, that's not right, you know? Why are, why, this is some, you know, high exalted pandita saying that he knows it's not right okay so then you have to say well what does he really mean he really means when you meditate on emptiness and realize emptiness that consciousness that path of the mind becomes a cause for buddhahood okay how empty however emptiness is not an actual cause, because it is a permanent phenomena that does not change or bring results. Okay? Now, so that's, now you know all about the natural uh, Buddha nature. Yeah? The naturally abiding Buddha nature. Got that down pat? Yeah? You don't know what it is. You have it, but you don't know what it is. But, you know, well, okay. Okay, now we're going to talk about another kind of Buddha nature, okay? the transforming Buddha nature. So this is the seed for the unpolluted mind. Okay, so it's the seed. Remember, seeds are not virtuous and not non-virtuous. They're neutral. Okay, it's the seed for the unpolluted mind. That's the transforming Buddha nature. It consists of conditioned phenomena that can transform into a Buddha's wisdom truth body. So it can be either a neutral phenomena or a virtuous phenomena. Uh, Non-virtuous phenomena cannot be transformed into a Buddha's truth body. 
Okay. The transforming Buddha nature includes neutral um, mental consciousnesses, yeah, as well as virtuous mental factors such as love, compassion, wisdom, and faith, and other virtuous mental states such as bodhicitta that are progressively developed as a bodhisattva progresses through the ten bodhisattva grounds. So there's a whole bunch of different things that are the transforming Buddha nature. So when you get mad at yourself and say, I don't have the Buddha nature, I'm never going to become a Buddha. Yeah, come back and read this and see how many things that are in you right now that are the transforming Buddha nature. Yeah, which have the potential to become a Buddha's omniscient mind. So the transforming Buddha nature also includes consciousnesses that form the collection of wisdom, which is the principal cause of the wisdom truth body, and the mind visualizing itself as a deity, which is a cause for the Buddha's form body. Okay? So all these are part of the transforming Buddha nature. It is possible to increase these virtuous qualities and mental states limitlessly because their base, the clear light mind, is stable and because no antidote exists that can eliminate them, uh, or eliminate it, the, the clear light mind. Yeah. Or nothing can eliminate the, uh, the virtuous minds either. They, they can temporarily, um, subdue them. So they can't manifest, but they can't eliminate them. At the time we become Buddhas, our naturally abiding Buddha nature will become the nature truth body of a Buddha. And our transforming Buddha nature will become the wisdom truth body of a Buddha. Okay. So both those Buddha natures become the two Buddha bodies. Hmm? Okay. Which of the seven types of awareness can be included in transforming Buddha nature? This was one of my questions when I was writing this. Okay, so you study low reg, you study different kinds of awareness. Well, which ones can become, you know, part of a Buddha's mind and which ones can. So wrong awarenesses such as resentment, self-grasping ignorance, and the mind that fantasizes being a star athlete without creating the causes. And all so many other fantasies that we spend our, our mind on, okay, our time on. These are not Buddha nature. Okay. So, you know, the kind of, you know, you go to so many kind of, uh, uh, not, not therapy, but, but new age kind of things. And, you know, what do you do? You do some yoga, then you lie on your back and you fantasize some, you're, you know, you imagine you're there on the, uh, on the beach and it's just the right temperature and there's no hair hurricanes. Oh, hmm, what beach is this? 
Uh, and there's no hur hurricanes. And Buddha Boy is there. And he's in a really good mood. And I'm just so peaceful. Is that a virtuous mind? Is that a virtuous mind? No, why not? You feel happy. When you feel happy, shouldn't it be virtuous? Does being happy mean you have a virtuous mind? Uh-uh. What is that mind? Attachment. Yeah. Have you spent a good chunk of your life fantasizing different things? Yeah. And letting... And then saying, but it makes me feel so good. So it must be, it must be good, you know, because when I'm angry, I feel bad and anger is a non-virtuous mental factor. So feeling happy means it must be a virtuous mental factor. Uh-uh. Okay. We, we try to trick ourselves sometimes. Okay. Okay. So in so those um okay, wrong awarenesses, uh grasping self grasping ignorance and all these uh fantasies of attachment, okay, are not Buddha nature. Similarly, when you are anxious and you start fantasizing the worst case scenario and all these horrible things that are gonna happen to you, how many of you have minds that go fairly quickly to the worst-case scenario. Uh, oh, it's just going to be, yeah, we, you know, the Buddha Hall is going to vanish into empty space. After we put in so much energy and spend so much money, it's just going to vanish. I know. Yeah, what's going to make it vanish? I haven't gotten to that part of the fantasy yet. But something will make it vanish. Yeah. <laughs> Say that into the microphone so that these people know. Yeah, that, you know, just anything we happen to not like that day, you know, that just can. Yeah. My boss gave me a dirty look. Oh, that means I'm going to get fired, and I don't have very much savings. I have enough to buy 500 pizzas, but, you know, by Tuesday, I'm going to be out of money and on the street, you know, with my shopping cart, but my shopping cart will be empty, you know. And then what am I going to do? All my old friends from school are going to walk by and see me on the street. And instead of feeling sorry for me and inviting me to live in their palaces, they're going to say, what happened to you? <laughs> right? Yeah, you have it all played out. Hmm? Okay. God. It's amazing what our mind does, isn't it? Totally amazing, the stories we make up. Yeah. 
And just because when you leave and there's no Buddha hall there, you know, just, I didn't make it disappear. And neither did your thinking that he would. <laughs> okay. So inattentive, inattentive awareness, awarenesses are not Buddha nature because they don't correctly know their object. So if they don't correctly know their object, they can't, their continuum cannot become uh, the mind of a Buddha. Okay? Correct assumptions, doubt inclined to the correct conclusion, inferential cognizers, correct mental def- or direct perceivers, and subsequent reliable cognizers, all of these are transforming Buddha nature. Okay, what's an example of a correct assumption? Let's see if you remember your your low wig. What? I have. You have what? You have Buddha nature. Okay, so that's a correct assumption. Yeah. Uh, what is an example? You don't know it for sure, but it is correct. Okay, doubt inclined towards a correct conclusion. What's an example of that? Even though I can't um, turn my mind away from affliction this moment, I can if I continue to practice. So I'm kind of doubting in the moment that I can turn it, but if I remember, I can apply certain things, and then at some point it will turn. Yeah. You know, that it it depends how you say it, whether it's going to be a correct assumption or a doubt. Yeah, if you say... Uh, you know, at this moment, I don't know if I can change my mind. Yeah. Um, yeah, that could be doubt. It could be, I mean, a correct assumption. Usually they, they phrase doubt as, well, maybe I can turn my mind, but maybe I can't. But I, a positive doubt would be, I think I can. Yeah. Okay, what's an example of an inferential cognizer? There's a fire over there because there's a lot of smoke. That how you figured out that we were in trouble a few weeks ago? Yeah, there's fire because there's smoke. Okay, what is an example of a correct mental direct perceiver? Mm-hmm. Direct perception by Mm-hmm. Yeah, our direct perception of impermanence. Yeah. What about a subsequent uh, reliable cognizer? What's an example of that? What's a reliable cognizer? A visual consciousness would be one. Yeah, or tell me, you know, describe what of it. Uh, our visual consciousness sometimes is reliable, sometimes not. Real, to be a reliable cognizer, it has to correctly ascertain its object. Okay, what is a subsequent cognizer? The next moment, okay. So subsequent reliable cognizer, yeah, would be, uh, for example, 
you have an inferential understanding of emptiness uh, and then subsequent moments of understanding that. Or you have a direct perception of emptiness and subsequent moments. That's This is all according to Sotantrika. Prasangika would see it differently. So the five paths, what are the five paths? Okay, good. Um, the five paths of the Shravakas, solitary realizers, and bodhisattvas are transforming Buddha nature, as are the ten bodhisattva grounds. Okay. The emptiness of inherent existence of all these minds is the natural, naturally abiding Buddha nature. Okay. In short, any neutral or virtuous mind that is not free from defilement and can transform into a Buddha's wisdom dharmakaya is part of the transforming Buddha nature. Mental consciousnesses accompanied by manifest afflictions cannot be transforming Buddha nature because they are eliminated on the path. Okay. Let's do the next paragraph. As neutral or virtuous states of mind, the transforming uh, Buddha nature consists of impermanent phenomena. As the emptiness of the mind, the naturally abiding Buddha nature is permanent. These two Buddha natures are one nature. Okay. Now, what does one nature mean? It doesn't mean they're the same thing, okay? Although they are not exactly the same, one cannot exist without the other. So at some time in their existence, they are both, they both have to exist, yeah? So only the emptiness of neutral and virtuous consciousnesses can be the naturally abiding Buddha nature because only the neutral or virtuous consciousnesses that are their bases are the transforming Buddha nature. So to be a naturally abiding Buddha nature, it has to be the emptiness of a mind that is the transforming Buddha nature. Okay? It sounds like a bunch of complicated words, but it, it's not. Yeah? Okay. So being one nature, it comes up a lot. Yeah? And in the case of, like, okay, a mind stream and the empty, or a mind and the emptiness of the mind, yeah? The two are not the same. Mind is impermanent, its emptiness is permanent. Okay, so they're not the same phenomena. But the, the, um, the mind, yeah, cannot exist without the emptiness of the mind existing. And the emptiness of the mind cannot exist without a mind 
existing that it is the emptiness of. So that's what's meant by, by Buddha, um, by one nature. Sometimes they say Buddha, uh, one nature means, um, what is it? Um, and, uh, wait a minute. Nominately different. One, one, yeah, well, yeah, they say one entity, but nominally different. So it's like saying one nature, but nominally different. Yeah. But that, yes, they're not the, you know, to be one nature, you do have to, you know, at some point be existing at the same time and have different names at least. But that doesn't really that's true, but it doesn't really get to it. You know, emptiness and the mind that it, it is empty of inherent existence of. Yeah. Uh, yes, those two are different phenomena. And, uh, you know, they are nominally different, but, you know, they're, they're, they're quite different. Yeah. They're quite different, but you can't have one without the other. Okay, so we'll stop here. Questions? When it lists going through the different seven types of awarenesses, um, what can be part of um, what a nature, it clarifies only correct mental direct receivers, but there's no sense consciousnesses here. Um, so sense consciousnesses can't be part of Buddha nature. Sense consciousnesses can be correct on the on the conventional level, but they are not correct regarding the ultimate nature. Yes, we love went through this, and yeah. Going back to the assertions of the Yogacara school asserting an inherently existent Buddha nature. How is it different from a soul or a self then? How is it different? So, so for the, um, the Yogacara school asserting an inherently existent Buddha nature, did I understand that correctly? Um, yeah, because they say that the mind exists inherently. How, how do they assert that it is different from a soul or, or a self? Well, this is, one of the ways that the Madhyamaka attack them. Usually the, the Yogacharyas, um, when they talk about the foundation consciousness, that is what usually sounds more like a soul or a self because it carries the imprints and it goes from life to life. Yeah, but then that becomes refuted. So... Uh- let me make sure I understand this right. So if we go back to the definition of the existence of the naturally abiding Buddha nature being the emptiness of the inherent existence of an ordinary being's mind, mm-hmm. does, is, did I hear this right, that it's more accurate to say that the naturally abiding Buddha nature must be the emptiness of the inherent existence of the neutral and virtuous mental factors of an ordinary sentient being's mind's mind? Um, not just of, it's not of, just of the mental factors. It's also of the primary consciousness. Okay. And all those qualities too yeah, that, yeah, we, that we mentioned. But it, but it's, but it, it, it's not just the emptiness of the mind. It's the emptiness of those particular 
qualities. Yeah, when you, well, when you, it's the emptiness of anything that is mind, mind being defined as uh, that which is clear and aware, and it can apply to mental factors and primary consciousnesses. Both of them are considered minds. Go back to low reg. About. What I'm confused about then is if, if so that, that what I heard you say, so I'm flipping it the other way, if, if I heard this correctly, so that of course the emptiness of a, of a mind that is infused with anger at that moment is not the net. No. Well, the, the, that emptiness, um, yeah, it's, that emptiness is not going to go to, to, uh, awaken. Actually abiding Buddha nature. Yeah, but you it, it you say well, but it is an emptiness of the mind. But here, when they say the emptiness of a mind that of someone who has not yet eliminated the defilements, they're just talking about the mind in general, not everything that is the mind. Venerable, when there's a anger arises, um, there is a solid uh of uh, uh in of me. Uh, presence, but how come in the neutral environment, which is like walking, sitting, or even breathing, that object when there is absent object, that grasping is not there? Um, because nothing. You're you're uh, when you're walking, you know, you're not thinking I. Yeah, you're just. You know, what are you thinking about the clouds? Uh, who knows what. Okay, when you're angry, it's like they attacked me. So you're really grasping the eye at that point. Okay, when you're walking, you may still have the thought, I'm walking, but the thought I'm walking is not necessarily grasping the true existence of the eye. The eye appears truly existent, to the mind. But when, when your mind is neutral, the mind is not grasping it as true existent, truly existent. And actually, when we grasp true existence, that is not a negative mind because we can all, also grasp the true existence of when you're making offerings. You know, look at me. I'm offering these beautiful things to the Buddha. So there's grasping at true existence then, but it's, also, it's a virtuous mind. Back on page 297, both quotes, but especially the second one from the 8,000-line Perfection of Wisdom Sutra. Mm-hmm. How would you ever have known what you explained about that verse from reading that verse? How what? How what you explained about that verse. Yeah. It's hard to get from the words there. Yeah, <laughs> that's true, and there's a lot of verses like that. So how do you how do you get to understand that? You you or? read one of the commentaries on the root text. That's why you know the masters write uh, the root text, which are often in in verse form. And then uh, they often will write their own auto-commentaries on it, or one of their disciples will write a commentary on it, or somebody a few centuries later will write a commentary. 
And you, you really need to depend on the commentaries to understand a lot of these things. Although some people, you know, who kind of understand the material before can, you know, figure it out. But if you, if you haven't, then, yeah. Would the Madhyamaka say that arhats um, have fully purified their naturally abiding Buddha nature? Not they haven't fully purified it, no, because they still have cognitive obscurations. Okay, let's dedicate. Who's dedicating? When you say, I'm dedicating, do you feel like a strong, I'm dedicating? Or is it just, I'm dedicating? Or is there, like, oh, I created so much virtue, I'm dedicating. <laughs> yeah? Look at how, how the I appears in, in different circumstances. <laughs> 